Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, good morning, guys. Glad to see your faces this morning. Happy Easter to you. For those of you um, visiting with us today, my name's Dustin. I'm the, the pastor here at River Bible Church. And man, we are, we are so glad that you're here to join us for this celebration of Resurrection Sunday. Um, we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12 today. If you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles in the back there for you. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure you have the, the, the Word of God in, in your hands. And as you turn to Luke's Gospel, let me kind of set today's message up. There are two spe- specific days in, in the year where Christians celebrate and worship God for His mercy, for His grace, His forgiveness, for our sins. Because these two days have forever changed our lives. The first day, it's Christmas. It's where Jesus Christ, God's own son, is born. I mean, think about that. The word of God became flesh. John 1.14. In other words, Jesus steps down from his throne in heaven to become a human being. Dear friends, that's insane. That's incomprehensible. The second day of celebration directly results from the first, and that's Resurrection Sunday. So we are gathered today in the name of Jesus to worship him, to revere him, to sing songs, to hear the gospel message proclaimed, to give and serve and and fellowship with one another, all because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, uh, Today's celebration... It is the most significant yet scandalous day that we could ever celebrate. Uh, The death and the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest single event in salvation history. Not only for our personal lives, but for the entire cosmos. You know, as Christians, we we focus a lot on the cross of Christ. As well we should. Uh, It's at the cross where Jesus... As the Lamb of God, he took our place. It's at the cross where our sins were transferred to him. It's also on the cross where Jesus' goodness and his righteousness and his holiness was then transferred back to us. It's called divine imputation. See, we need the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, transferred to us, because we have no righteousness of our own. We are sinners by nature. We cannot make ourselves righteous in any way. We can't make ourselves perfect. We're not perfect. We don't have that capacity to place ourselves in right standing with God. So yeah, we need Christ's righteousness imputed to us because there is a legal debt that must be paid for our sin and for our disobedience. And that's where we see the work of the cross. And and the good news is that that transfer, that imputation, happens on on the cross. The legal debt has been paid for our sin, our disobedience. Uh, And for those of us who believe in the the resurrection, that's, that's why there are three crosses behind me. That's why we see crosses at other churches. But the death of Jesus, that's not the end of the story, is it? Without the resurrection of Jesus, without Jesus walking out of his own grave, he's just another martyr who died for a good cause. See, without the resurrection, Jesus is simply a good man who taught good things. Without the resurrection, Jesus is the, he's in the same place as Buddha and Muhammad and, and Joseph Smith and, and others. They're still all in the grave. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this about the resurrection. 
1 Corinthians 15, 13. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation to you is in vain. And so is your faith. Uh-oh, that doesn't sound good. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. That's even worse. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for those encouraging words. And what he's saying here, guys, is apart from the resurrection, Scripture confirms that that cross behind me, the empty cross, it means nothing. And that's why we're here, to, here today, though, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ that took place over 2,000 years ago. Actually, we as a church, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus not once per year, but once a week. We celebrate the cross or the resurrection every Sunday. Because Jesus' body was not found in a borrowed grave, was it? And most importantly, Jesus revealed himself to over 500 people to prove that he did exactly what he said he was going to do. Now, the question, though, is what does that mean for you today? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 and following. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified, and they, they bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember remember how he, he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men to be crucified and then rise on the third day. And then they remembered his words. So returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women were with them, and they were telling the apostles these things. But these words, they, they seemed like nonsense to them. They did not believe the women. However, Peter got up. He ran to the tomb, and when he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what just happened. And this is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Thank you. Have a seat. So let's take a deeper look here. Starting in verse 1, on the first day of the week... Very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing the spices that they had prepared. Since the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of salvation history, all four Gospels, we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record it. Although they express it differently, all four Gospels agree on the women's early arrival at the tomb. So in verse 1 continues, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, we've got the the first day of the week there, that's Sunday morning. We would say this is at the crack of dawn. So by the Jewish calendar, it's the third day after the crucifixion, the death and the burial of Jesus. Verse 1 continues, "They, they came to the tomb bringing the spices that they had prepared. Now, question. Who's the they? Who are we talking about here? Well, Matthew tells us in verse 10 who the they are. We've got Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and and the other women. So this is really a a fairly a large group of women, probably a half a dozen or more. Uh, These women, they watched Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. They also watched Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take Jesus' body down off the cross and place it in the tomb. Now, let's pause here and put ourselves in their shoes. 
these women probably haven't slept for three days. They were eyewitnesses with Jesus getting mocked and beaten and murdered. I mean, how much sleep would you guys get if you saw that? So these women, they are exhausted. But notice what Scripture says here in verse 1. They were bringing the spices that they had prepared. So these women, they kept themselves busy over the the past several days. They had prepared burial spices for Jesus' body. They make a plan to finish what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus started. Joe and Nick here, they're they're the ones that took Jesus' body off the cross. They placed it in a tomb, and they did anoint it. In fact, one of the Gospels says they they anointed Jesus' body with 100 pounds of spices. The reason that they did that is because the Jews don't embalm. They anoint the outside of the bodies with with spices and, and ointments. So Joe and Nick, they they had to do all of this fairly quickly, probably within a few hours because the Sabbath was approaching at sundown on that previous Friday. We call that Good Friday. So these women, they watched all of this, but evidently the men did not anoint the body up to the women's standards. Go figure. So they wanted to finish what the men started. So pause for one second. What does that tell you about the mindset of the women? In verse 1, we we learn by the women's actions here that they made the conscious, willful decision to anoint a corpse. So what, what action, what does that action say about these women? It proves that they had no expectations of a resurrection. They didn't expect that. So keep that in mind as we go through here. Verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Matthew's gospel says that this stone was very large, Matthew 27. Luke doesn't say how. He doesn't say why it was removed. But Matthew 28, 2 says that there was two things that happened. Number one, an earthquake, a localized earthquake. And number two, an angel removed the stone from the tomb. The picture in Matthew's gospel, by the way, is that the angel didn't just politely roll the stone away. No, 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 no. See, the the language paints a picture that he picked this stone up and he he threw it away from the tomb like a frisbee. And now it's laying flat on the ground. That brings us to key point number one for today. The angel removed the stone, not for Jesus to get out, but for everyone else to get in. The angel removed the stone, not for Jesus to get out, but for everyone else to come in. Now, when those women, when they see Jesus' tomb wide open, what do you think happens? Right? Their heart starts pounding. They get nervous. They get a shot of adrenaline because they know something's wrong. In verse 3, they went in. But they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Uh Uh-oh. We got these women who are already depressed. They are exhausted. They are in mourning. And they're walking to Jesus' tomb, think about this, with no hope. These women have no hope. They believe that Jesus failed in his mission. They are not expecting a resurrection. They are caught up in their grief. And and now we've got more bad news upon bad news. Now, let me ask you this. If you take flowers to the cemetery to see your loved one, do you expect to see an empty grave? And if you did see an empty grave, would your first thought be that the corpse has, has risen from the dead? No. No, of course not. And yet that's the whole point That's the whole point of Jesus conquering sin and death. Now, all four gospel writers, they include this narrative in their gospel, like we said earlier, but none of them, none of the writers tell us how or when Jesus walked out of that tomb. We know why. We know why Jesus was resurrected, but we don't know when and we don't know how. Scripture only tells us that the tomb was found empty. 
Now, notice the story's progression so far. We got the women. They found the stone, but they did not find the body. What they did find and what they did not find, they are placed side by side in this narrative. What the women don't know is that before the angel opened the tomb, somehow, some way, God the Father resurrected Jesus' dead body. Jesus' physical body went from dead and lifeless to becoming alive and glorified. The initial evidence of Jesus' resurrection was there. The body's gone. That's it. That's all we know. So the angel removed the stone, not for Jesus to get out, but for the women to come in to see the effects of the resurrection. In verse 3, I find this really interesting. Luke, for the first time, he calls Jesus the Lord Jesus. He uses that title, Lord. Lord means master. It means ruler. Jesus is someone who wields authority. And Jesus, remember when Jesus told those religious muckety-mucks in Matthew 9, 6, he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he told a paralyzed man to get up, take your stretcher, and go home. And guess what? He got up and went home. Jesus told the disciples before his ascension, Matthew 28, 18, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, a little sermon in a sermon. For you guys who love politics, there is no better place to learn about politics than in the Bible. Because politics are all about who has authority. Who is going to serve who? Who has the power to make decisions for the nations? Who has the power ultimately to rule the world? And why? The answer is only found in God's word, where God tells us. He tells us the end. He, he tells us who has ultimate authority. But I digress. End of many sermon. Why does Luke call Jesus Lord here? Why is he the master? Why is he the ruler? Why is he the one that has authority? Well, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Luke knows something that the women don't at this point. Luke emphasizes that the crucified Jesus is now the exalted and glorified Lord Jesus. Jesus, it's also the same Lord in the Old Testament. But the resurrection changes something from the Old Testament. See, Jesus is now Lord over death. Key point number two. Death has control over sinners, not the Savior. Death has control over sinners, not the Savior. See, death proves that we are all sinners because we're all going to die. Verse 4 continues. While they were perplexed, so the women are perplexed about, about this, about Jesus not being in there, the body not being in there, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So instantaneously here, these women went from being depressed and hopeless and perplexed to terrified. Good night. The whole story goes from bad to worse. They should have stayed home. Verse 4, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the presence of two men, it points to the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 19. This law required that there had to be two witnesses present in the court of law for any kind of testimony. So we've got two men. Verse 4 says that they're in dazzling clothes. Now we know that these are not ordinary men because their clothes, they shone like lightning. They glistened. They dazzled in the presence of, of the women. These two men are angels, and their clothes reflect the splendor and the glory of Almighty God. The same language is used when, when Peter, James, and John, when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. Same kind of language there. So does this appearance of these angels, does it reassure the women? Does it, pri does it provide any sort of comfort for them? Verse 5 says, nope. 
the women were terrified and they bowed down to the ground. So we have our answer there, that the angel's presence does not comfort, it terrifies them. So just as lightning breaks in from the sky, we've got the angels who break in from heaven. Now what would you do if you were there with these women? You'd do the same thing, right? You got a bright light in your face, you'd turn away, you're terrified, you'd hit the ground. What's interesting about verse 5 is that generally when an angel appears in scripture, he says... Hey, guys, don't fear. Don't be afraid. It's okay. But not these two angels, though. These two angels, they seem to have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. (laughs) Verse 5 says, Why are you guys looking for the living among the dead? The living normally don't live in a cemetery, do they? At least normal people, I'm thinking of the man who was possessed by a legion of demons in Mark 5. He lived in the tombs, but he was anything but normal. Why do you think the, uh, the angels are so snarky here to these women? I mean, they are women disciples of Jesus. Well, the reason is because they had no business planning to anoint a corpse. It's a rebuke. They're being scolded and, rep- and reprimanded by heavenly angels. And you thought your mama was bad. Why? Why are they being rep- reprimanded? Because they didn't believe. They didn't believe the Lord Jesus about his resurrection. And the, the angels are not there to play games. Why are you seeking the living among the, the dead, ladies? That's crazy. What are you thinking? So the angel shows up to correct their faithlessness. Verse 6, the angel says, he's not here. He's he's risen. A, A better translation for this verse is that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus was not unconscious and then woke up and then just happened to walk out of his tomb. That's impossible. Some people call this the swoon theory. The swoon theory is the belief that Jesus didn't really die at his crucifixion. They say that Jesus was merely unconscious when he was laid in the tomb, and while in the tomb, he resuscitated. The people who believe this theory, they do not understand the Roman act of flogging. Secondly, uh, many people who, um, I mean, think about this. How many people have been flogged? with a Roman flogging, second, have been crucified, and third, stabbed in the heart like Jesus was by that Roman soldier, and they're going to recover on their own? Verse 6, guys, it's a proclamation from heaven stating the fact of the resurrection. The angels are saying, he's not here, ladies. Look around. Check it out. He's not here. He has risen. God the Father has raised Jesus from the dead. So what's that mean for us today? It means that God the Father has accepted Jesus' sacrifice as the Lamb of God, as the atonement, the propitiation, the, the substitution for our sins. In other words, the relationship between God and man has been made right. The sin debt has been paid. The relationship has been restored. So, dear friends, that's not just good news. That's the best news you will ever hear. And here's what we find interesting. The angels, they, they, they offer no proof that Jesus was resurrected. They simply proclaim it. They proclaim the resurrection to be true. The women, they have to choose to believe it just like you and me. Verse 6 continues, The angels say, Remember? Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee? You know, I, I love, love, love the realness of the Bible. Here's why. Nothing is faked. Nothing is contrived. It is raw, and it's real, and it's, it's filled with all sorts of human drama and emotions. They say, remember 
how he spoke to you. How many of us have a hard time remembering things? <laughs> and not just little things either, right? For example, gentlemen, your anniversary. That's one thing you want to remember. The same thing is happening here with these women. Jesus told them about the resurrection, but amid the, their emotions, they forgot Jesus' words. Jesus told them in advance that he would be handed over to sinners, that he would be crucified, and then he would be raised from the dead. And Jesus didn't just tell them once. He didn't tell them twice. Jesus told them three times. Jesus is a broken record on the subject of the resurrection, and yet no one was listening. The angels continue here. Verse 7, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day. So the angels, so they quote Jesus. The angels remind them of what Jesus said. Now keep in mind, these women are disciples of Jesus. They have seen Jesus heal people wholly and instantly. They have witnessed him cast out demons. They have sat at his feet during his teachings. They have believed Jesus' words, and yet, up until this point, they forgot the most important thing. Now, I don't know about you guys, but man, oh man, am I encouraged by that. Personally, that gives me hope. It reminds me of God's grace in my own life. Because the disciples that we read about in Scripture, they are, they're, they're not super Christians. They're just like you and me. They've got a bad case of the normals, just like you and me. Key point number three, we must remember that Jesus, we must remember that the words of Jesus are life and death. We must remember that the words of Jesus are life and death. Verse 8, so the women, they remembered the words after the angels reminded them. Um, I'm guessing that since Jesus taught metaphorically many, many times that the disciples had probably interpreted all this crazy resurrection stuff as like a parable. Secondly, they could have been so disturbed about Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion that they didn't even hear the word resurrection. Key point number four, it is the correct interpretation of God's word that makes sense of everything. It is the correct interpretation of God's word that makes sense of everything. I love it. These women are just like us. They, they hear and then they don't hear Jesus. Even when, when they were standing in Jesus' physical presence. Now, the problem that we all have today is that we often have a, a tough time believing that Jesus means exactly what he says. Mark Twain said this. He said, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me. It's what I do understand. So when Jesus said that he would be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day, he wasn't being hyperbolic. He was stating a fact. Verse 9, returning from the tomb. So let's pause here for a second. How fast do you think these women ran out of that tomb and back home? Man, I'm guessing that these ladies tied first. First place for the Galilean Olympic Games. They got the gold medal on that. Verse 9, so they reported all these things to the 11 and all the rest. So I want you to picture this. After everything that the women have been through, they have been running. They're out of breath. They swing open the door where all the male disciples are, hi are hiding, by the way. That's a sermon within a sermon. They're hiding like cowards. And they barge into this house and they start telling the guys about everything that just happened all at the same time. Can you imagine that conversation? All the ladies talking over one another about the stones and the angels and Jesus' body not being there. This conversation is loud, it's emotional, and it's confusing. 
Now, keep in mind here that, that the women, the, they're, they're not strangers to the disciples. For the past three years, they've been following Jesus. They've been sitting at the feet of Jesus. They've been eating with Jesus. They've been doing life with Jesus. These male disciples can trust these women. These disciples respect these women. And in verse 10, we see who the women are. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women. They were all telling the apostles these things. So let's, let's keep in mind here in verse 10 that these women are not sharing their opinions. They're sharing facts. They have seen the empty tomb with their own eyes. They have seen angels. They have heard testimony from the angels stating that Jesus is alive. In John's gospel, Mary Magdalene is also the first one to see the resurrected Jesus. So how do the male disciples respond? Do they rejoice? Do they stand up and say, I knew it? No. Verse, verse 11. But these words, they seem like nonsense to them. And they did not believe the women. Typical men. Right, ladies? <laughs> Typical men. We're not going to have any of this resurrection nonsense. My goodness, can you, can you picture how deflated all these women must have been at that moment? How disappointed they are at this moment when their friends, they're not only not believing them, but, but really they're ridiculing them. Because the picture here in verse 11 is that the disciples thought that the women were delirious. They thought they were hysterical at that moment. So this scene, it indicates continuous disbelief by the men. It's not just a one-time thing. The men kept refusing to believe. The men chose not to believe in the resurrection. The disciples, they did the same thing that we do. We, we hear about this Jesus and we hear about this resurrection for the first time and many of us doubt. We don't want to believe the sinful nature in us that instantly rejects the resurrection message. And pushing back on a supernatural truth, that is the normal human response. And yet that's the whole point. Key point number five. What we as humans cannot conceive of, see, it's in that moment. It's in that place. It's in that person. It's in that event we don't get it. That's the very place where God acts. That's where God shows up and works. And once again, the Bible is so honest. It is so truthful about people struggling to believe. The gospel writers, they don't try to downplay this. They don't try to explain away what's going on. There is a, a struggle that the disciples have with the truth. And these are the same disciples that spent three years with Jesus. So we fast forward 2,000 years later to today, and it's even more of a challenge for us, isn't it? We only believe by the grace of God. Verse 12, Peter, however, he got up and he ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what happened. Well, at least Peter gets up to do something. John's gospel tells us that Peter sees the linen cloth that was wrapped on Jesus' body, but now it's in a separate place. So let's think about this. Where is Jesus' body? Was it stolen? Did somebody steal it? Grave robbers would have taken everything. They, they wouldn't have left anything behind. So Peter, he recognizes that the tomb has not been robbed. But we also know that thieves don't try and rob tombs that are guarded by Roman soldiers. We learn about that in Matthew 27. Thieves, they look for easy targets, right? Notice here that the disciples, they did not steal the body either. Some people believe that the disciples stole Jesus' body to make a point. Now, let's think about that. 
The first problem that we should have with that theory is that the disciples weren't even thinking of the resurrection. It didn't even cross their minds, and we can see that in today's text. Secondly, and here really, here's the, what I would consider the more important thing for us. Would you, would you go to the trouble of fabricating a lie? Would you live a lie about the resurrection if Jesus himself were a liar and a fake? And then would you yourself die for the sake of the resurrection if you knew that the whole thing was a sham? Eleven of the twelve disciples were murdered because of their faith in the resurrection. Dear friends, nobody's going to die for a lie. Peter knows that the Romans, they wouldn't have taken the body. The Sanhedrin didn't take it either. That, that would be completely in conflict with what, they, what the Sanhedrin wanted. So where is the body? Where is it? Verse 12, Peter went away amazed at what happened. It's challenging to interpret Peter's reaction from the, the Greek manuscripts here. That term marveled, that, that term uh, amazed, it could mean that he is amazed and he doesn't know what to think. It can also mean that he is amazed by his own unbelief. Regardless, the point here in verse 12 is that Peter's faith is weak. It's weak. Isn't that crazy? Peter's right-hand man, he still doesn't get it. And once again, dear friends, I would say that that's really encouraging for us today. The fact that all the disciples, both the men and the women, they are so slow to learn and believe what Jesus taught about the resurrection. The, the resurrection surpasses human comprehension. Human emotions, they are temporary, and the facts about the resurrection rarely convince anyone of anything, especially in our world today. The Apostle Paul, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 1.27. He says, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So in other words, nothing short of, of seeing, nothing short of hearing or touching the resurrected Jesus is going to convince the disciples about the resurrection. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. Jesus shows himself 10 times before his ascension. Jesus showed himself to Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. Jesus showed himself to the other women who were at the tomb, Matthew 28. He showed himself to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24. He showed himself to Peter in Luke 24, verse 34. And then Jesus showed himself to, to 10 out of the 11 disciples with Thomas not being there. He was absent in Luke 24. And then he revealed himself again with all the disciples with Thomas being present in John 20. Jesus then revealed himself to seven of the apostles on the shore of Galilee, John 21. And then he showed himself to more than 500 people. 1 Corinthians 15, 7, probably on the mount, uh, a mountain in Galilee. The same verse says that he showed himself individually to James. And then finally, he revealed himself to the disciples when he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And as a bonus, Jesus also appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, but that was after the ascension. Okay, so we got the, the empty grave. That proves that Jesus is not there, which is what the angels proclaimed. And yet we've got all these appearances from Jesus. It proves that he was raised just as the angels declared. So we all have a choice before us today, either to believe or, or, or not. Because Jesus is not going to reveal himself to you or me physically like he did the disciples. We're reading about a very specific miracle for a spe specific time. Now, I'm not saying that God can't. 
He's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. But um, we are people of his word. And his word says this in Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. So yes, long ago, God spoke through the prophets. And a few of those prophets, really only a select few, you got Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, they were given the authority to perform miracles and healings to prove what they said was true. And that's what Jesus did as well. Jesus provided miracles to prove that the gospel message was true. And then in verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The words of God's son, they've been recorded in a book. It's called the Bible. God's word is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and it contains truth without error. So all that to say, God's word is infallible, but it's also all sufficient for us. We don't need anything else other than the Bible for us to believe. We don't need prophets. We don't need miracles. We don't need signs or wonders. Our hope, it comes, it's based on God's written word to us. And look, I get it. I know sometimes it seems like if our own personal experience, it contradicts God's word. And I realize that sometimes it seems like there is just no way. We have moments in our life, there's just no way this can be true. My encouragement to you today is that when trials and when temptations come, that we remember God's word. And we remember the the resurrection. We remember the cross, the empty cross. See, our strength, it comes not from ourselves. It comes from God's word. It comes from his promises to us. And for us to remember God's word, it means we got to read it, doesn't it? We must also interpret God's word correctly, the way in which it was written. We are not to conform the Bible to our opinion. The Bible conforms us. It changes us. Key point number six. Faith cannot be proven. It must be chosen. Faith cannot be proven. It must be chosen. It is not enough to feel that the resurrection is true based on our emotions. It's not enough for you to accept the resurrection intellectually either. And the reason why is because your feelings nor your intellect are enough to save you from a very real place called hell. Key point number seven, only true faith in the resurrection results in true salvation. Only true faith in the resurrection results in true salvation. So how do you begin this journey of true faith? Well, it's amazing to me because God, in his mercy, he tells us. We don't have to guess. We don't have to let our opinion get in the way of how are we supposed to get to God. God tells us how to get to him. Romans 10, 9, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say you could be saved. It doesn't say, well, you should be saved. And it, says, it doesn't say you might be saved. Anybody have that translation in your Bible? No. It says will, you will be saved. So you have a decision before you this morning, either to believe it or not. Did Jesus really have the audacity to walk out of his grave just like he said he was going to? Or is all of this just foolishness? Why is it so difficult for all of us to believe this resurrection message? It's difficult to believe because of the sin that dwells in us. That the sin in us, it rises up and it rages against the very thought of a resurrection. Why do we push back? Because if the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if this is true, dear friends, then we are all accountable to Jesus for how we live our lives, whether we believe it or not. 
We're all accountable, believers and unbelievers. Look at this, Philippians 2.7. So when Jesus had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, that death on that cross, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name. Why? Why did he do that? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee, not some, not few, not most, every knee in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, and here we've got that title again, is Lord. He is Lord all to the glory of God the Father. So in other words, we will either confess that Jesus is Lord now of our own volition by faith, or we will confess him as Lord later, as we're, as we're paying for our own sins in a very real place called hell. Because of our disobedience, because of our disbelief. There are only two options when it comes to the afterlife. Number one, allowing Jesus to pay for your sins through his substitutionary death and his resurrection. Or number two, you pay for your own sins. Have you guys ever wondered, like, why does Scripture say that punishment in hell is for eternity? Have you ever wondered that? (laughs) I love it. I've wondered it a lot. And the reason that it's eternal is because we're all sinners. We're not a perfect sacrifice like Jesus. John the baptizer said, look, that's the Lamb of God. That's the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. So if if Jesus is Lord because God the Father raised him from the dead, all for our benefits, that means something for us today. And first, it means that if you're not a believer at this moment, man, I just want to encourage you to do some business with God today. Time is short in your life. Maybe you got dragged to church today because it's Easter and somebody twisted your arm. Maybe you're here for the food. We do have a potluck. Settle down, Gary. I'm almost done. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, we're glad you're here. I, I, I am sure. Absolutely. Amen, sister. Let's preach it. But dear friends, if you're here for the food or you just came out of obligation, if something has changed or if something is changing in you right now because of God's word, I, I pray that you don't ignore that. I guess I should say don't ignore him. You don't want to ignore him. Jesus said this in John six forty four. He says, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Excuse me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus' resurrection also refers to your resurrection. That is, if you choose to believe. Is the Father drawing you to his Son today? Is he? If so, don't don't ignore this beckoning. If you've got questions, please, please ask. Please stay for prayer. we got Bibles in the back. We want you to take God's Word. We want you to read it. Start with John's Gospel. You're also invited to come back next Sunday. We're going through Matthew's gospel verse by verse. See, we teach God's word verse by verse so that you can experience God's word, uh, uh, you can experience him day by day. So dear friends, please know that my prayer is that you would indeed experience Jesus as your savior and not your judge. Secondly, if you are a believer this morning, it means that we are people of the book So you are also invited to come back next Sunday to worship the resurrected Jesus with us. Hebrews 10.25 says this, Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, 
but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And that's where I want to land today. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. He did not leave us here as orphans. Jesus left his book, which is himself. He left us with the church as well. God's word, God's people. Those are the only two things that are destined for heaven. Everything else is temporary. Everything else is going away. So until that time when Jesus comes back, we have his word and we have each other. Now, look, I know we're all crazy. I get it. Some of you think it's a contest, but it's not. I want you to know we are an imperfect church, but we are a family that loves Jesus and we love his word. And God has given us a purpose And the purpose is to fulfill that thing called the Great Commission. We want to make God smile by sharing Jesus with you and with the Verde Valley. And look, y'all, you're invited to join us. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Father in heaven, what a a glorious, glorious day for you to, to bring us together to worship, to listen, to realize that what Jesus prophesied and predicted, that he is risen, that you raised him from the grave. Lord, thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for the work that you are now doing in our individual lives. Lord, may we be listening. And we do look forward, Lord Jesus, when you choose to come back and to receive your bride. We pray for that. But until that day, we all have a work to do. And that is to share this message of the resurrection with the Verde Valley. We love you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.